these times by faith. It's amazing, isn't it? Just having this little window, we go through a chapter or in the Bible, and God is blessing us and investing in us and uh, speaking to our hearts. And um, you know, I met with a brother today who also just shared, not in our church, but he he also shares just the uh, love and appreciation of the Word of God like this. And um, and was just acknowledging that it's not always so easy to find. I mean, online we can find teaching, but often in churches. And so I'm so glad we can do this we, uh, we're together. And uh, and I hope that we sense that God is building building us up and enlarging our coasts and leading us in the faith. So let's let's have a moment of just praise Him, and then we'll pray. Should we do that? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you in this moment. We just choose to praise you and to worship you. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah for you. You are so worthy of our praise tonight. We think of this open book and your plan, your spirit in us. What a privilege to to uh, grow in faith, to grow in understanding, to draw near with an open heart tonight. And we think of this uh, amazing chapter and testimony of Stephen and his faith and the early church and the first martyr and all let it stir our hearts tonight as we think about your plan, your wisdom that you, you set up kings and, and dethrone kings, that you have all things in, in, in your control and power, that you are working things together way beyond what we could ever understand. But we believe that and trust you for that as we are here in the church age. Um, and we just have such a sense of purpose in the Great Commission that you are building your church, that we can be a part of that. And we pray for the local church here. We pray even for for this Saturday, God, we think we're going to go on the streets and uh, and hopefully speak to some people and just prepare the way for us. And, and all of the different ways and avenues we have of sharing the gospel, maybe personally with people or putting prayers in our hearts and faith walks and different ministries. God, we pray for your blessing on each one of them. We ask you and trust you in Jesus' name. Bless our time together now in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, praise the Lord. Okay, Acts chapter 7. Um, and let's just take uh, the opening to review. Remember last week we looked at... S- chapter 6 where we saw the organization of the church and then we uh, we started going into Stephen's sermon so we'll just review remember we, we the opening chapters um, chapter 6 there you can see the organization of the early church where they had that need um, they had a situation in the church that brought the need to the surface for certain delegation and organization in the church. We could say the, the initiation or the shadow of what would become deacons in the, in the church to follow. Uh, and then chapter 7, where we are tonight, the first martyr, we're looking at his message, and as we're going through the message, we're thinking this message and what he's going to say is, is to stir up the Sanhedrin to such an extent, the words that he, are, he is going to say 
are so provoking and heart-searching and in their minds heretical and, and sacrilegious that they, they run upon him and drag him out and stone him. An incredible scene. And this uh, is, is the beginning. We can see the seed right here for chapter 8, which is where the full force, the persecution on the church begins under, under Saul of Tarsus. So that's just a reminder where we are. And of course, here in chapter 6 and 7, uh, going into 7, is the third time we see the Sanhedrin, not the last in the book of Acts, though uh, Paul himself in chapter 22 will be before the Sanhedrin also. So if we were going to outline this chapter, remember most of the chapter is looking at what? It's looking at Stephen's message. It's, it's the longest uh, um, uh, discourse uh, in terms of a message that we see uh, in the New Testament, in fact. It's, it's a very long message. Um, and it's broken up, we could say, the first eight verses. He speaks about Abraham and he highlights the, uh, the, 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 the patriarchs or the fathers coming right down to Joseph. Then we're going to look tonight at this part, part, Moses. And then the Sanhedrin verses there is how they respond to the message. So in his message, he highlights these characters, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and then he packs the punch. And then their response to that, and of course, ends with, with a, we could say a glorious martyrdom, if we can say that. It, it's, it's, of course, it's, it's a gruesome end, but also it has glory involved in it. So we start started off with uh, verse 1 with the question, are these things so? And of course we have to reconnect that back to the end of chapter 6, which is where they gathered him before for them and, and they set up false witnesses and they said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs with which Moses delivered to us. And notice a few things standing out in those verses. They are mentioning uh, the temple, the law, and Moses. These are key buzzwords for the Jew. If you're going to touch any of those, you're, you're asking for trouble. And this was the accusation. He is speaking against the temple against the law and, and against uh, all of the customs that were brought to us by the revered character of Moses in their history. In verse 15, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. So we can only assume, going forward through the message, that that, that was what they were witnessing all the way through. This glow, this, this anointed, spirit-filled man was glowing um, as he expressed different emotion, passion, and and there was weight with his words. The Holy Spirit was searching the hearts. Um, we remember um, towards the end of the message, he's going to say to them, you resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. And that's what they're doing during this message. They are resisting the Holy Spirit. If we were to give this message a title, it would be, as your fathers did, so do you. It would be a good good title for it. Um, uh, so, 
uh, chapter verse 2 here, he says, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of, the glo- of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, said to him, Get out of your country from your relatives and come to a land I will show you. So he starts right off with the history from Abraham. He brings him out of the uh, Chaldees. They dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So Stephen's setting the stage. He addresses them um, formally and honorably. And then he goes right back to the key point in their history, Abraham, where it, where it all began for, for the Jews. Um, and then verse uh, 5 and verse uh, 6, he um, he says that Abraham no, had no child. He promised to give him uh, for a possession and to his descendants after him. So before Abraham even had a child, God promised him to your seed, meaning, of course, he would have a child, a promised child, and to your seed, I will give this land. In verse 6, God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 40 years. And of course, that foreign land was Egypt, where the, the family of 70 grew into a great uh, people in Egypt, ready to be delivered. And uh, verse 7, the nation whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs or fathers. And this is what Stephen is going to bring out in his message, the patriarchs, our fathers. He's going to go through this history and he's going to bring out some some potent points um, regarding the fathers. So 16 times we read in his message, either patriarchs or fathers, all the way through. He's now going to bring out some things about the fathers. Verse 7, uh, verse 9. And the patriarchs of who? Of Joseph. Notice he doesn't say, and Joseph's brothers. Could have said that, but he says, the patriarchs, our fathers, that's his emphasis, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. Verse 9, but God was with him. So he brings this emphasis as they're listening to their history about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the the heads of the seven tribes and Joseph. He says the patriarchs were envious and they sold Joseph into, into slavery, but God was with him. Highlighting the fact that Joseph was the favored character in this story and the brothers were missing the target. Joseph, who was given a dream by God with a prophetic purpose of how God was going to provide for them, became the one who was rejected by them. And this is the point Stephen is bringing out. He was sold by the hands of his brothers for the price of a slave. So here Stephen is showing that these brothers, Judah and Levi, think of those who become the, the tribes, the heads of these tribes, were just rotten brothers who were naturally minded, selfish, uh, and and, uh, um, rejected their their brother. And verse 10, And he delivered him, God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles. 
gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh. Again, the emphasis here, God was with him. God delivered him. God gave him wisdom. God blessed him, made him a governor over, the, over Egypt and his house. So this subtle reference of his brothers being wrong, his building, Joseph is the character that was honored by God. So verse 11, And now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. So Stephen, a Jew, before the Sanhedrin, saying, Our fathers, our fathers, the brothers did not know the one that they did not know the one that they were rejecting. Verse fourteen. And Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, seventy-five people. So Joseph, the one that was rejected, of course we know the story, now has been exalted in the providential plan of God. And Joseph, of course in the fulfillment of his very own dream, was the one who would become the provider for his brethren. In the same way, it mentions this in Acts 13, uh, speaking of Christ. It's Paul's first sermon in Antioch of Pisidia. Remember, in that sermon he says, and they, in condemning him and crucifying him, they fulfilled the prophecies that were written of him. And that's kind of what he's saying here. They didn't realize it, but they were helping bring the whole dream or prophecy to fruition. For God had a plan that through Potiphar and then eventually Pharaoh's house, Joseph would become the provider. Verse 15, so when Jacob went down to Egypt, he died and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So Abraham and the patriarchs had not yet seen the promised land. All that Abraham saw was this little parcel of land that he bought, we could say by faith, uh, for, for the eventual inheritance of that land. Verse 17. But when the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt until another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them cast out their babies so that they might not live. So here he's again just going from Genesis right into the book of Exodus, how the people multiplied and how another pharaoh came he did not know. And here we're going to see the first example that Stephen has plucked from their very own history, the first example of the errors that their fathers have made, and that was the rejection of Joseph. The next one he's going to use is going to be uh, Moses. And now he continues their history, and he's going to bring up Moses, Moses, the one who eventually did deliver the people from Egypt, and he's going to show how, in the same way, our fathers, in the same way they didn't recognize Joseph, but rejected him, they didn't recognize the hand and plan of God through Moses initially and also rejected him. So let's look. This is where we got to last week. So verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. And when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom 
of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So again, here it is just laying out an undeniable account of Moses in the history. He wasn't killed with the other babies, but obviously God's providential care protected the baby that Moses would be raised in Pharaoh's own house to become the deliverer deliverer of the people um, oppressed by the Egyptians. He was preserved to deliver Israel in the same way that Joseph was preserved so that he might bring uh, provision for his own brothers. Verse 23, And now when he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. And now he turns the focus of the story here. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, listen to these words, but they did not understand. So he's beginning to pack some punches in the message. Moses, when he came out and struck down that Egyptian, it says right there, it's a beautiful verse, and when you read Exodus um, chapter 2, you bear that in mind. When Moses did that and buried the Egyptian in the sand, what was in his heart? Tells us right here. He supposed that the people would understand that God had raised him to be the deliverer. But Stephen's words, but they did not understand. And this is the point he's going to bring to the Sanhedrin. Just as they didn't understand, guess what? You've missed it also. That's where he's going. So, verse 26. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting. And he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Notice those two words, ruler and judge. And do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? So what happened? Did they receive Joseph? Did they recognize uh, Moses? Did they recognize that Moses was to be the deliverer that God had appointed? Did they discern the time and the appointment and God's man and what God was doing? No, they did not. They rejected him. They did not want to consider him reigning over them. Just like Joseph's brothers, same thing. You, you, you're going to be a rule over us? But they misinterpreted his dream. It wasn't about so much ruling over them as much as bringing salvation to them, bringing provision to them. Verse 29, And then at this saying Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. So he was rejected and ended up being in the wilderness for 40 years because of that rejection. Verse 30, And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. 
I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. So Stephen highlighting these words of how the Lord was saying to Moses, you will be the deliverer. You will go down and deliver them. And here is the, the, the next punch coming in the message. This Moses, whom they rejected, that's the point. This Moses, the one that God raised up, the one that God appointed, the one that God had prepared and called, this very Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a, notice he changes the word, not a judge, but a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. Who did? Moses did. The one that, the one that they rejected ended up being the one who brought them out. After he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Oops listening and Stephen is saying do you get it this Moses who they rejected became the deliverer our fathers did that so he makes an emphasis here this Moses whom they rejected the one saying who makes you a ruler and a judge and remember he changes the word a ruler and a deliverer So just like Joseph, they spoke about ruling, but he was to provide and preserve life. Moses brought them out. They rejected him, but he brought them out. Verse 37, he uses this this term again. Notice, this is that Moses. So before, this Moses, the one they rejected. Then he says it again. This is that Moses who said the children of Israel... To the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from your brethren. Him will you hear. So, he's just laid out two very powerful examples in their own history of their own fathers when they did not recognize, but in fact rejected the deliverers that God would raise up. And now he says... um, that same Moses that was rejected is, is the Moses that, that gave us the prophecy that a prophet would come. This is in Deuteronomy 18.15. It's a prophecy that Moses said that a prophet will come and you will hear him. And if you do not hear him, you will face the consequences. And in Acts chapter 3, after Pentecost, I don't know if you remember in the message, but is it 2 or 3? In one of those messages, Peter clearly says the prophet that Moses spoke about is here and it's Jesus. And, um, and, uh, and of course, they, they hadn't recognized it. By the way, these same Sanhedrin would have heard uh, that explanation by Peter. They would have been familiar with the claims of Peter and these apostles after Pentecost saying the things that they said, for example, that that prophet was Jesus. So when Stephen brings this up, this is the same Moses who said there will be a prophet. They know Stephen and Paul and uh, sorry Peter and John. All these guys are together, and they know where he's going with this. So again, the the words here in verse thirty-seven. This is the Moses implying they rejected Moses. Think of who he was. Again, it's hard for us to imagine for the Jew how revered and respected he 
Moses in their history. And also, what did he say? He also said a prophet would come. And again, Peter had already said that this prophet was Christ, and they hadn't heard that either. Verse 38, he goes on and says, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us. He's pasting it on another layer, a little thicker. This is the one, by the way, the one that was our fathers rejected initially. This is the one who was on Mount Sinai. Who God gave the law at the very center of our faith. Do you understand what a massive blind spot they had? They did not recognize him or receive him. This is the one that was rejected. And uh, Moses, he, he's highlighting that, the one they greatly honored. Verse 39, he says it again, Whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. He echoes the same point. So here's the, the heartbeat of the... the, the, the here's the, um, the, the center of the message. He wants to... He wants to line this up with what has just happened with the not recognizing or discerning Jesus as the Christ and not only not recognizing him but rejecting him to the, to the Roman authorities and ultimately to the cross. So, um, verse 39, Our fathers who would not obey but rejected and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Again, the emphasis, our fathers would have gone back to Egypt. Um, They rejected him in Egypt. They rejected Moses in the wilderness. They disobeyed. They would have even gone back to Egypt. So he says there in that verse again, the word rejected. Verse 40. Saying to Aaron, so they, they would have gone back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. <laughs> and who remember the, the point he's making. Who said this? Our fathers said this about Moses. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Can you see how Stephen is highlighting, bringing this emphasis out of their own history to say, Listen, boy, our fathers, they missed the target, didn't they? They, they in, you know, God was faithful and he never gave up on them and he, he blessed them anyway. He used Joseph anyway. He used Moses anyway. But if it was left to our fathers, it would have been a mess. That's what he's saying. They missed the boat. Verse 42. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me, and he quotes one of the prophets here, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." And the point here again, the fathers, the people of Israel, delivered from Egypt, 
um, what did they do? Even after those incredible miracles and God providing for them in the wilderness, even them seeing the very presence of God with them in the tabernacle, they turned to idolatry. They headed for religion, idolatry, false gods. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. What a great term for that. The tabernacle of witness. The tabernacle was witnessing. was an incredible testament to the fact that God was present with them. Imagine it could not have been any more um, visual and demonstrated that when the, 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 the presence of God was, was with them, the tabernacle of witness as he had appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it, in turn also brought it with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Remember, the false witnesses that have been brought against Stephen were accusing him relating to the temple and Moses and the law. So here he's... In their history, he brings up how the tabernacle in the wilderness eventually became the temple in Jerusalem built under Solomon. Um, and, and of course, um, God cannot, cannot be confined or dwell in a temple made with hands. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. But the witness, did I put it here? Yeah, right there. He does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So now he's addressing that accusation. He's saying that now the temple is obsolete in the sense of God's presence being with them. Or even the offering of the sacrifices. Christ is the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. And the temple now is not just a building but it is the church that we saw born in Acts chapter 2. He's saying there's been an incredible fulfillment and transition from the sacrifices in the temple to Christ and and, and the church. So, the point of his premise so far then, let's just highlight it again. Joseph and Moses both rejected but came back as deliverers. And the Sanhedrin listening, the Holy Spirit searching, convicting, and they are resisting and maybe grinding their teeth. And it's beginning to bubble. The mess is like a slow boil. (laughs) You imagine putting on the pot in the beginning, turns the flame on, and by by this time it's beginning to boil. And the Sanhedrin had listened, and finally he gets to these words, verse 51 and 50 to 53. Um, has my hand not made all these things? Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. In other words... 
I said all that to say this. I laid out all of that history, highlighting those points to say this. You are doing the same. You are as stiff-necked and as proud as, as, your fa- as our fathers were through, through history. He brings the final punch, or, or let's say, what is it? The first, what's the first punch? And then the, he brings the first punch, and now he's about to bring the death blow in just a minute, but he's going to bring the final punch. But he says, Our fathers, notice what he says in these verses. He says, verse 52, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. These are very potent words. Of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. Now he's getting right, he's narrowing it right down, laser heart surgery right here. He says, you know, our fathers, they rejected the prophets. They persecuted the prophets. They killed the prophets. The prophets that were sent by God to prepare the way, to declare the coming of the Messiah. All of the prophecies laid out that have been fulfilled. Our fathers killed the prophets. And he's going to say to them, you do worse than they, for you reject the just one who the prophet spoke of. Imagine. In verse 53 here who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Let's go back. So which of the prophets did our fathers not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, the Messiah, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. We're reminded of that in Peter's messages, remember? That Peter brought up that point in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4. We see that same repetition. He's, he's bringing it to the point that you rejected him. He's speaking, speaking to that generation in Jerusalem, the ones that cried out, crucify him. The ones that cried out, Barabbas, set Barabbas free. You crucified him. You have become betrayers and murderers of the just one. Now, if you think about what is being said there, to a messianic Jew who is a... Who is a a zealous Jew following the law, that the whole center of your culture and your family and your city and your very life is the temple and the scriptures and ultimately the coming of the Messiah. So you think about how heavy these these accusations are that you have betrayed the just one, the Messiah, and you have murdered him. And just to add insult to injury, just to, just to say, drive it home even further, look at the next verse. Whom you have, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. The law that you esteem to be so precious, let's just say this, you don't, you killed the Messiah and you haven't even kept the law either. You killed him and you haven't kept the law. Not only was Jesus the Messiah, of course that's his point, but you rejected him, you didn't recognize him, you rejected him, and you betrayed him, and you murdered him. They're the words that he's using. Verse 54. And when they heard these things, (laughs) oh, they were cut to the heart. 
and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And notice this. This isn't, this isn't uh, Stephen's message anymore. This is direct, inspired commentary of what was actually happening. He'd said his message, they were beginning to respond, but then the commentary of Luke under the inspiration tells us what was happening at this moment. That he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And verse 56, and then he said, Look! I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Wow. We'll see how they respond to this in a moment, but let's make a few comments. First of all, we mentioned this at the end of John chapter 1 during our service when Jesus said to them, Oh, you will, does this amaze you, Nathaniel? You will see greater things than this. You will see the Son of Man. Remember that? We, we made comments on that phrase. The Son of Man is used over 80 times in the Gospels alone. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Son of Man. And it's used by Jesus. It's, it's his favorite title of himself. He would refer to him for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You will see the Son of Man returning, etc. He uses this phrase of himself. And the only time it's used outside of the Gospels referring to Christ is right here in this verse. The Son of Man. It's the only other place it's used. And it's used by Stephen when he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this refers back to a prophecy Oh, which I didn't put up there, I'm sorry, but it's in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. You can read it. It's an incredible prophecy, and in future months or years we'll study these passages in Daniel, and we'll see Daniel 7 is an incredible prophecy. And the the pinnacle of this particular prophecy is, as all the prophecies tend to end with the return of Christ or the setting up of the kingdom, and in, in those verses, Daniel seven thirteen and 14, let me read them to you. Daniel speaking says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, there's the expression, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom the one is the one which shall not be destroyed. Every time Jesus used this term, the Son of Man, in my opinion, and there are different views on it, but in my opinion, I believe that he was referencing this prophecy, which of course spoke of him, the Messiah, when he used the term the Son of Man, he was referring to this, that not, he came one time as the Lamb that went to the cross, but he will come a second time as the Lion that will sit on the throne. It's, it's pointing to his ultimate coming in glory to set up his kingdom on the earth. In Revelation 20, a literal kingdom of a thousand years on the earth he will set up. 
So, and this verse is considering his second coming. So imagine, think of it. We know the timeline. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit descended and gave birth to the church. We've studied these early chapters. And now Stephen, in chapter 7, is saying, I see heaven open, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, the ascended, glorified Christ, standing at the right hand of of God. And this is a scene right out of Revelation, chapter 4 and particularly chapter 5, when Jesus is there at the throne. And this is what he's saying he sees. I see the glory of God, it says. We also see a similar echo of Daniel 7 in Matthew 24, which is one of the most prominent end times passages in the Bible, where Jesus is answering the questions of his disciples when they ask him about the the end of the age. And he answers and lays out this incredible prophetic line, which ends, of course, with his return. Let me read it to you. Daniel 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, and of course we know that there will be a time of tribulation on the earth preceding the return of Christ, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, Matthew 24, verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man, there it is again, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So this phrase is a definite recognition of the return of, of the Messiah in glory. So, we remember that when Christ was before the Sanhedrin, this very same Sanhedrin that Stephen is standing before, this is in Luke 22, verse 69, Jesus says to them, think of it, the same Sanhedrin, Not many days have passed. Remember, he was with them 40 days after the resurrection. And then they were waiting, and then the Holy Spirit came. And so it's not so long ago. Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be the Messiah, was told that he was the Messiah, was the one that they had crucified. They knew that these, these men were his disciples. And they had heard Jesus say, Luke 22, 69, Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And when Jesus said that, they all said, Are you the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. The ultimate blasphemy that this Jesus of Nazareth would make claim to be the Son of Man and also to be the Son of God. And now, Stephen is standing before them, and he, he, he looks into heaven, he sees the glory of God, though they don't know that, they just see his face like an angel. But they hear him say, Behold, I see the Son of Man. Remember, Jesus has said, Hereafter you will see the, the, sorry, hereafter the Son of Man will be at the right hand. And now Stephen is claiming to be looking at the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. Incredible. So Stephen's vision, he's in their presence with the face of an angel. 
He says that he is beholding the Son of Man in heaven. Whether they believe that or not, that is is too much for them to bear. He says he doesn't say he's sitting, he says he's standing, and it's it's curious because most of the predictions of Christ's ascension into heaven and most of the New Testament epistles referring to Christ's finished work and then ascending into heaven refer to him sitting down. But in this verse, it's curious that it says he was standing. And we can be speculative with this, but other commentaries echo this same idea that perhaps he was standing to receive Stephen, who would be the first martyr of the church. This is a very, this is a very key um, moment. But he sees the Son of Man standing, receiving the first martyr, perhaps. The first of millions, by the way, uh, that will be to give their lives eventually. And this was too much for them to hear. Um, uh, Well, we shouldn't say first of millions. We don't know the actual number. There's different definitions for martyrs. You get the idea. But so many, countless people, through the persecutions of the Roman Empire, even to the modern day, so many people losing their lives for their faith. So Stephen's gaze, we could say he had dying grace, as, as did many of those who met their end in the Colosseum and other places like that. There are many testimonies written recording those events of how, or the firing squad, or being burned at the stake, how these saints died with a, with a, with a peace, with a, with a great uh, grace of joy and expectation that they were going to meet their Savior. And it was a mystery to those who beheld them, to those who lit the flames or pulled the trigger, whatever it was, they couldn't understand this. And you and I might think, oh, I, I can't ever imagine dying like that with such peace and grace. But, but it's, until you get there, you don't know, you don't have that grace now. But, um, but that's often the testimony of saints that pass on uh, to be with the Lord. But this was it. They, they, this, that was a final punch they could not take any more. Verse 57. And then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So at this point, all order was abandoned. And this ordered noble council became an angry mob who who no one was in control there was a mob mentality it's funny when they went to Pilate, they said we we cannot we cannot uh, you know we we cannot kill him we bring him to your hands but at this point it was different they just dragged him out of the council took him out of the city uh, no orderly trial um They rushed him out of the city and stoned him outside, the first recorded martyr of the church. And we have this curious phrase, which we'll end with tonight, the last line. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is how Saul of Tarsus is introduced. In this one phrase, this incredible event where the first martyr 
So from that, we can obviously gather and assume that, uh, or be sure, really, that Saul was present through that whole message. He was also one of the ones that was resisting in his heart, gnashing his teeth, so angered by what Stephen was saying. Uh, to him, in his in his world, and his 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 view as a zealous Pharisee and Jew, hearing what Stephen was saying was just the worst things that could ever come out of anyone's mouth. And yet, this same soul would be transformed by the grace of God and the Spirit of God and become the Apostle Paul. Incredible! But this is how he's introduced, similar to the end of chapter. Um, the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, where we see Barnabas introduced in one line. There was a man who was named Barnabas by the apostles, who, and he's also going to become a key character, of course, become a companion with this very same Saul. So this is the first introduction of Saul here at the end of chapter 7. Remember, when Jesus is going to appear to him in a couple of chapters, in chapter 9, Jesus is going to say to him, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads. It's hard for you, we could say, to resist the Holy Spirit. And we can only imagine the deep, deep impression that this event had on Saul of Tarsus. Um, I imagine that he would have often reflected on this, that he was there. Imagine as the years went on, as he became the church planter and writing the epistles and loved the church and carried them in his heart and prayed for the saints and loved the body and lived and died for the very purpose of the gospel. How he would reflect on this, how he would consider what an incredible man of God and grace that Stephen was. He would consider the message, the content, and he would consider um, his, the, the very purpose of preaching the gospel and the Great Commission. And I can only imagine how often he would have reflected on that event and how deeply it would have affected him. The amazing message. In fact, in Acts 22, there are three times that the conversion of Paul, or Saul, the conversion of Saul is mentioned. One is chapter 9, of course, which is the actual account by Luke. But then Paul tells his own testimony two more times. One in Acts 22, one in Acts 26. And in 22, this is what he says, verse 20. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. He makes reference to it in his own testimony. This is many years later. Or how God used that, we could say, in a pre-salvation sense. There are many things that perhaps happened to us even in our own life that God used in a pre-salvation sense to prepare us, to break us, to work in our hearts and lives that we would have an opportunity to respond to him. Verse 59 They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down, last verse, and he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, we can see a few points of reflection to the Lord's own 
last moments on the cross. Um, he was also praying to the Father that they would not charge them with this sin. Remember, Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first words that Christ spoke on the cross, there were seven sayings on the cross, and the first one there, forgive, forgive. He also said, receive my spirit. The last, uh, the last statement of Christ on the cross. And uh, Stephen, meaning Stephanos, the victor's crown, and he would have actually been given this crown, I'm sure, in his martyrdom. And this martyrdom of following persecution did not quench the fire. Um, even with the persecution that's going to follow in the next chapter, we're going to see, uh, the, 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 when we think of Fox's Book of Martyrs and Church History, the phrase in, in there is that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Remember, Jesus said himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, even though they will try, even though all of hell, so to speak, will come against the work of Christ and against the church. He says, I will. It's not a, there's no question mark there. I will build my church. And even though there's been so much persecution and, and, and people that have given themselves for, for the for the gospel and for their faith over the, over the centuries and over through church history, uh, the work of God goes on. So we'll pick up this uh, next Thursday, uh, sorry, next Wednesday night um, with chapter 8, which looks at the great persecution and the scattering. Uh, the week after that, um, I'm going to actually be in India, so I won't be here for the class, But so we'll have a, a break that week from the classes. But, ne- but uh, next week I will be here for Acts 8. Okay, so Father, thank you for this chapter, and what a joy to go through it, and we just pray, give us reflections and meditations on this, that we could perhaps uh, read through these chapters again, and have moments where you would uh, speak to our hearts again and again, and uh, bless our our week, uh, all that we have to do these last few days of this week, and the weekend coming, um, the uh, chillax on Friday, all bless it, bless it, bring children for the outreach on saturday for the service on sunday oh we just put it all into your hands with great expectation and in jesus name amen amen okay any uh questions or comments yeah Yeah, they were because of what we can only assume. I mean, we we, we assume that the reason that they all, in a, in a moment, it says they stopped their, they were gnashing their teeth. They plural, all of them, they stopped their ears and they they plural ran upon him, dragged him out. It was it was, and we can only say because the accusation was just like Peter's was, but this one with in a much more. He really built his argument and really, really packed the punch that you crucified the Messiah. You, you rejected the Messiah. You betrayed him. You crucified him. You do not keep the law. You are hypocrites. And he, all of the, 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 the vulnerable areas that it was just too much for them. So, so they, they reacted because of, of, how convicting, in the deepest sense it was, of because they would know that as 
the, 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 any, any man would know the own hypocrisy he would experience in his own life as a, as a, as a Pharisee or as a religious person. Um, but even though they, they did not believe that Jesus was, was the Messiah, to accuse them that he was and you crucified him was just was more than they could bear. Yeah. It would be like, you imagine, if we could think of some type of analogy, um, you know, something being so valued in a certain, I don't know, you collect certain things that are so valuable, and this is the Ming vase that was the, you had that, you broke it, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. It was, it was like you're touching the, the very center, the nerve center of, of their whole faith. Yeah. Is there any evidence from a historical point that the Sanhedrin's um, were not expecting the Messiah to come at that particular time, that they were expecting him to come a bit later? Well, we would say, I mean, maybe not just the Sanhedrin's, but the Jewish, you know, we know that there is, there is, there was, there was, and there was it before this, and there's always a believing remnant all through all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, there's always a believing remnant of Jews, even today, that that were waiting for the Messiah, that accepted the Messiah, and today believe in the Messiah. So we, we never say, oh, the Jews rejected him wholesale. There's always a remnant. Um, and and when, when, when Christ came, there was a messianic expectation. Um, there was... There was a sense that the Messiah could come at any time. Maybe not for all. A lot of them were just sleeping in in their religious Judaism. But there was a remnant that were expecting. We know that from Luke 1. That there was um, Simeon in the temple who was waiting for the day that the Messiah would come. Remember he took the baby in his hands. And a couple of verses down it says that Anna, the prophetess, she when she had seen him, it says she went and told to all who were waiting for the hope of the Messiah. So there were those that were waiting. So there was a messianic expectation. Um, but also there was a blindness, particularly in the, in, in the, in the leaders of Judaism. They, they rejected him. You know, when, when we say the Jews rejected him, it was through the representation of the Jewish leaders. In Matthew 12, and, and echoed through the book of Acts, they, they were continuing to, to not accept, but... But there were many who did. Acts chapter two and three thousands are getting saved. But so, yeah. I mean, there there was a Jewish expectation, and there are some Jews today who are waiting for their Messiah today, waiting for the same Messiah that we're waiting for. We just the difference is we know that He's already come once and accomplished the work the work of redemption. But I remember my first time in Israel. I was standing in front of the the western wall and I turned around in one of the balconies there was a banner that said the Messiah is coming soon and these are from Orthodox Jews just waiting for the Messiah and I'm thinking wow you know especially as Bible students when we look at the prophecies and and them being fulfilled I've spoken to Jews even in Israel even our guides who know the Bible and you try and show them the prophecies and somehow they just they just don't or can't see it, you know. It was funny when I when I lived in, in the Yemen uh, years ago. Um, the local Arabs always wore very loose clothes, especially their trousers. And their trousers hung very low under their crotch. 
And we all used to say, why? Why is that? And their answer was that each one of them was expected to be a Yeah, in their tradition and in their thinking. Yeah.